This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Captain John Luke Picard of the USS Enterprise. Welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review and critique show that everyone knew was a bad idea that would never work out from the start. My name is Gep, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Dr. Izix. Hi! And now we are finally there. Thing that basically every friend I have who I talked to about doing this show was like, Oh, do some Next Generation episodes. And, and we will. And yeah. we're going to. And we're about to. We're starting. We did it. We finally did. I'm honestly glad that we spent this long getting to my favorite series, because if we'd done this early on, like if I listened back to early episodes, they were bad and I didn't know what I was doing. Well, it's fine. You know, we got we have to practice at this sort of thing. And, yeah. you know, we're producing a hundred some episodes. I think we say we could say we've had some practice. Yeah, we practiced for a couple of years and now we're ready to tackle Star Trek The Next Generation, which is arguably... Hey the most popular star trek or at least one of the ones that cemented it is like it went from pop cultural icon to like seminal sci-fi show that defined television for at least a few decades yeah people uh remember who picard data are uh, they're less so about you know uh, uh, kira or uh chakotay or say uh sheridan from babylon 5 or uh john Crichton from farscape uh, you know, we might know who these people are, but the general, you know, person on the street, maybe not so much. Yes. So it's been a long time since yes. <laughs> our old episodes, but as we did with original series, this is not a episode critique or talking about anything specific. This is going to be a general overview of the cultural landscape of the late 80s and the uh, early production and, and genesis of that which would become uh, Star Trek Next Generation. Yes. Uh, wait a moment. This did get started after the Genesis device was used, so maybe there's a connection there. Yeah, there could be. <laughs> there could be that. <laughs> well, like we, So we already talked about some of this because it ties into the history of the Star Trek movies because this actually started yes. before they were even done making all of the original series movies. Mm-hmm. So original plan which uh, was being tossed around in like the late mid to late 70s was to create a new live action Star Trek show called Star Trek Phase 2 that would be a direct follow-up to original series and use most of the same cast. Yes, and uh, so you, you know, you're already sort of generating stories, getting sort of, you know, you know the, the early work was being put in to, in order to get this uh, uh, sort of off the ground. Uh, and then it kind of didn't. Yeah, they they even had some production tests. You can look up like like set tests and and uh, makeup tests. They cast or they had like cast two additional younger crew members. One of which went on to star in the in the movie uh, to kind of bring in young blood that they could eventually replace the older actors with if they needed to to be that next generation, really. And. They, the higher ups at Paramount decided that it wasn't worth them trying to invest in a whole TV show, but Star Trek was still popular enough that a lot of the ideas that they had for Star Trek Phase 2 wound up being used in Star Trek The Motion Picture, which then spawned all the things we've been talking about for the last 10 or so episodes. Indeed. So it's like, wait, we could make 
more money off Star Trek. Hooray! Let's make some movies. Uh, you know, get, you know, after that first one did all right. Um, so let's roll. And they did. And then <laughs> after this, they had a, about they had like almost ten years of super successful movies. And at this point, it's about twenty years after the original show mm-hmm. aired. So uh, yeah, <laughs> we've hit nineteen eighty six, and this is when they start talking about how maybe they could, in fact get away with another Star Trek TV show. Like, the time is right for another Star Trek TV show, uh, even though we're still making all of the movies. The main issue that they hit here is that all of the original cast, one, is getting a little old to star in a sci-fi action series. Indeed. So if you want to be having your your, your phaser battles each week, uh, this might not be very good for uh, Shatner's hips. And also... They, at this point, have been in dozens of movies, mm-hmm. which really makes the price higher for actors. Yeah, so you can you can charge more, and people will actually pay it. And, well, if they don't, then it just doesn't happen. So through a combination of budgetary restrictions and just them being kind of fed up with the old direction of the movies, the decision was made to make an entirely new show with an entirely new cast that would be set about a hundred years after the original series so a a new generation a later generation a next generation and thus we get into all of our casting and other tumultuous behind the scenes thing because this wasn't an easy show to start making (laughs) nope Uh, like a, a conflicts of personalities, uh, Gene Roddenberry wanting things to be a certain way and that being kind of confusing for people uh, and, uh, you, know, you know, getting everyone the right folks as well. And, you know, the thing, and then things happen as they uh, started getting things together. Yeah. So starting with, of course, Gene Roddenberry, who, who came up with the original concept for the original show, had been floating around doing conventions. Everybody knew him at this point. He kind of developed a cult of personality around him as the Star Trek guy. So uh, we, we've talked some of this already yeah. <laughs> as far as, you know, uh, him being it's like, oh, instead of, you know, we made this, I made this. But he also did not have a particularly good relationship with the Paramount studio. Like the executives and him didn't get along that well. He'd been pitching a ton of different series and story ideas and things, and none of them had particularly landed. Uh, and he had a very bad relationship with studio higher ups. And the only reason that he got to still be involved was because he lawyered up and was able to argue that his original concept and things was still important enough that he should still be directly involved with any future Star Trek projects, even though technically Paramount owned the IP. Yeah, so uh, I have to at least have input here. Otherwise, I can yank this off and, uh, well, you guys lose a bunch of money. Uh, So uh, let me in. And they're like, fine. (laughs) We're still going to have other people sort of regulating you to a certain degree, but... You're going to have a say. And then the second (laughs) thing that was happening, uh, which happened a little bit later, but it may as well be included in the troubles portion, is uh, Paramount started shopping this show around to people. And Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't going to work. Everyone knew this. This this is the worst possible idea you can ever think of on paper. Taking a long-running, fan-beloved, fan-driven, pop-cultural icon series, basically rebooting it with an entirely new cast, and trying to make it happen again. Everyone knew this wasn't going to work. So they, I believe they call this conventional wisdom. It's like, yeah. this, no one's done this before. This doesn't make sense. It, 
it can't happen because it hasn't. So basically the thing that happened was no network wanted to take on the show. Too risky. So generally what happens with TV, uh, if you're not completely aware of the of the kind of behind the scenes thing there is a studio like paramount comes up with a show idea and gets all the stuff together to make it they then basically sell it to a network that orders a certain number of episodes and then they will be exclusively run on that network like you know upn cbs any of those things and that's why you have certain tv shows made by a studio but debuting exclusively on a given channel exactly it means that there's multiple entities here that have to basically sign off on the process then. So uh, to get around no one actually wanting to buy episodes of this new show that they knew wasn't going to go anywhere, uh, Paramount decided to fund the thing themselves and then skip the network process and send it straight into syndication, which basically means that any network can run any number of episodes they want which is what was happening with original series, because after original series wrapped up, this usually happens when a show ends or has gotten a certain number of episodes, they send it into syndication, which means that any network can start running it as reruns, basically. Indeed. So uh, effectively, the next generation was already reruns in a certain sort of dynamic year, I guess. Yeah, and the weirdness yeah. of this is, while this is another decision that probably shouldn't have worked, it was actually a genius move, even though it was kind of forced on them, because that is why Star Trek the original series was so popular in the first place. It wasn't popular from its original run. Very few people got that invested with it in the original run, comparatively. The reason that it had become such a giant pop cultural icon is because dozens of smaller channels had been running it in syndication for years. Exactly. So it was accessible to people beyond, you know, that's, you know, original home. So more people got to see it, more people got to enjoy it, more people got to fall in love with it. So now all of these small channels that had been making the original series popular in the first place all got to air Next Generation because it was already in syndication. So people could just continue watching Star Trek in the same place they'd already been watching Star Trek for years. So, uh... Basically, we do. We have Star Trek, and then after it, the next generation. One day a week, there's a new episode. Hooray! Yeah, so it worked out in a really weird way. Yes. <laughs> but all that comes, you know, later on, because the show hasn't even been filmed yet at this point in what we're talking about. So well, this is a plan for what they have episodes, you know, to basically do the syndication without having 100 episodes yet. So uh, apart from Gene Roddenberry, probably the best known behind-the-scenes name uh, of this era of Star Trek is Rick Berman, who was brought on to be Good. the executive producer. And everyone knows his name because he's a very controversial figure in the Star Trek fandom. Yes, uh, I, I remember uh, Leon Thomas's video, uh, Berman Trek, uh, gives a pretty good rundown of a lot of, uh, well, his, his particular... Uh, uh, tropes that he is all about. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, this is how Star Trek has to be, and here's the limits... And uh, also, uh, we can't have it be too gay. Hmm. So he was brought on. He was brought on as someone that Gene Roddenberry trusted to run the show. He'd been working for Paramount for quite a while at this point. He started doing independent film production in the '60s and '70s, working with uh, PBS on their show, The Big Blue Marble, and then later got hired on by Paramount, where he did a lot of things that you've heard of. He's done some episodes of like Cheers and Family Ties and MacGyver and. 
Uh, there was a miniseries called Space, which is one of the reasons that they thought of him for this science fiction project. You've done something involving science fiction. That means you can probably do more. Go for it. Yeah, but of course, he's not a good figure, basically. He's <laughs> incredibly conservative, won't let them run mm -hmm. in very uh, any LGBT storylines, even though this is something that people kept pushing for, including Gene Roddenberry, said that it was time to start bringing that into Star Trek in this era. You know, Star Trek has been, you know, a show in the, you know, the past that has kind of pushed the envelope in several things, you know, you know, for what it's allowed to do in that era. And we're, we should be able to allow, be able to do this here, but, but Rick just won't let us. And, uh, sorry guys, I guess we're just not going to do that or do it well if we try. Yeah. And one of this, this one, while I'm not trying to get off the hook for anything, it's difficult to know whether that was his own personal conservatism or him just being a devout kind of company man and not wanting to take any Rick's any risks with Paramount's big, you know, flagship franchise. Uh, the thing that we can say about him specifically as a person is that he is well known to be a blatant misogynist and yeah. mistreated the female cast of every one of the shows he worked with, including to the point where several people wound up quitting, which is why yeah. we know all of these behind the scenes stories. It's like, well, uh, yeah, if you're, you're going to be driving people out. The don't you know? Don't expect them to not talk about it. So, uh, yeah, Rick, uh, you're kind of an ass. Yeah. So, not the best person to have running the show, but he did run some of the most popular eras of Star Trek. Though it's difficult to know how much of that was because of him or how much of that was in spite of him. <laughs> uh, I'd like to see the alternative world where uh, you know Bourbon was dropped early on or never got pulled on board, and uh, to see how things would have gone and. Uh, Maybe things would have been, you know, next generation would have run for 10 years or something like that. Or maybe it would have only gotten two seasons. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's, but it's sort of a something I would at least like to think about and, you know, go through that dimensional portal for. It's very difficult to know because you could never figure these things out. Change one thing and everything changes. <laughs> Dang butterfly effect. One of the other uh important figures from this particular era only for the first couple years of this show uh wasn't wasn't running the whole thing for as long like rick berman was but uh, maurice hurley was brought on as a producer showrunner and indeed uh he's a, a bit of a weird one as well uh he spent the 80s working on production for shows like uh, the equalizer and miami vice he also wrote a lot of uh did a lot of tv slash tv movie writing he did the script for a canadian movie called uh firebird 2015 which is a very strange pro oil propaganda car movie oh my uh, uh that's something that sounds like it'd be on mst3k <laughs> yeah i mean i'll just i was just baffled by this just briefly the the plot of this is that the government has made it illegal for private citizens to use gasoline um ostensibly because of a gasoline shortage but then it's later revealed there's no such gas shortage they're just using it to control people and keep them from having fun with muscle cars <laughs> muscle cars are destroying society for reals these guys yeah and the heroes are people who you know are car rebels and they have to bring a pro-car politician across the country to vote on legalizing gasoline again i might want to see that at some point but not on a day when i feel like thinking <laughs> very weird thing to read the synopsis of nowadays yes <laughs> he 
He also worked on more odd outings like Baywatch Nights and uh, Kung Fu The Legend Continues. Yes. I think we talked about Baywatch Nights at one point before. It's, it's yes. baffling. <laughs> Uh, he's, uh, technically, uh, one of the Borg voices in uh, an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation as well. So, uh, I guess, uh, that's a thing. <laughs> Maurice Hurley, Borg. <laughs> and then they also brought back a bunch of, uh, several of the bigger, uh, original series writers. One of the ones that we would know most often is DC Fontana, who was one of the head writers from this era. Yes. Uh, she's, she's back, back again to kick some ass and, uh, Give, give us some, uh, some some sales here. But uh, yeah. there was a lot of weird controversy happening in the writer's room as well because they uh, couldn't really keep a head writer for the first two seasons mm-hmm. consistently. Uh, there was a lot of miscommunication about themes and ideas. And uh, one of the most commented on aspects of this uh, early seasons was uh, Gene Roddenberry enacted a rule that at this point in the future, humans would have moved beyond personal conflict, and so you can't have interpersonal conflicts on the show. Um, yes. <laughs> from some of the stuff I've seen and read, it seems like this was broadly misapplied because uh, Roddenberry's health was starting to fail at this point in his life, and he couldn't be mm-hmm. as directly involved in the first couple seasons of the show. Uh, so other people enacted this as like a blanket no-conflicts-at-all rule. Uh, but a mm-hmm. lot of the stuff that Gene Ronberry himself wrote or story concepted included some level of interpersonal conflict. So I feel like it was just a misapplied idea of like a no petty bullshit rule instead <laughs> of a they're not allowed to disagree with each other at all rule. Yeah, the, the not it's it just that no one could disagree with you know, each other at all ever makes the characters seem unhuman in some episodes. It's like people don't act like this. Uh, it gets better as the uh, series gets on, but you know, especially those early couple seasons, it's very much a yeah. Th- these are not real people. Uh, <laughs> the actors are doing their best, but yeah, this doesn't make any sense. This is something that we're going to comment on more as we go on. But I feel like this, as a thing that I keep hearing as a criticism, is an interesting one because if you directly compare the social dynamics on next generation the way that the crew interacts and the social dynamics on original series the thing that they were trying to move specifically away from was the outright antagonistic relationship that you had between kirk spock and mccoy Mm -hmm. while they could at times come off as friends ribbing each other often they just came off as people who hated each other and had to work together (laughs) yeah we're we're best friends but also i hate you (laughs) damn it spock why do you have to be so logical? <laughs> a lot of the stuff, as we've commented on, comes off in today's context as just out-and-out racism. Yes. So even uh, when yeah. you have the Next Generation crew disagreeing with each other and arguing and having discussions about the right course of action, it never gets to the level of antagonism and hatred that we actually see in original series, which is what they were trying to move away from. So I feel like that was a good pivot that was broadly misapplied by people who didn't understand it. Yes. So uh, <laughs> we're going to swing so far the other direction that, uh, you know, everyone becomes bland. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or another uh, another term, beige. <laughs> which is uh, kind of uh, fitting for the next generation in a lot of ways. <laughs> so, of course, they uh, had to get an entire new cast. And we are going to spend a long time introducing the main cast here. 
because we're never going to mention it again. Yes. Uh, should we uh, start with Ro Laren? <laughs> <laughs> All right. There's some changes and stuff that'll come up later that we're going to have to introduce when they come up. But of course. So well, of course, uh, first character. We're just gonna. I'm just going through in the order that people tend to be listed. Not. I have no idea what the order they were actually cast in was. Mm-hmm. Neither do I. Headlining any Star Trek franchise is the captain slash commander slash ensign who inexplicably wound up in charge, depending on what we're talking about. Uh, <laughs> and in this era, of course, we have Captain Jean-Luc Picard, played very memorably by Sir Patrick Stewart. Uh, Stewart uh, has a long list of uh, credits to his name. Uh, yeah, he's been in theater. He's, he, he was commented as being an unknown Shakespearean actor by somebody in the early days of the production uh, and uh, I think LeVar Burton put a poster up on his door saying exactly that. Yeah. <laughs> sort of to make fun of that sort of like, no, this guy is actually like legit. He's, he's been in stuff. I Claudius and uh, dude and things like that, you know? Yeah. But while he's been, he was like decently well known in theater circles in England and he was very, very good at it. But in the U.S. he was he was basically completely unknown, which is interesting when you look back on the show and think about just the amount of star power that he has now. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's uh, gone from zero to all of it. <laughs> yeah, he had like some scattered US TV appearances, uh, a couple of film roles like Dune, but nothing too major. And what about Excalibur? Oh yeah, that too. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he wasn't he was so unknown that they didn't even know about him to consider him for the part until Mm-hmm. He was coincidentally seen by one of the producers giving a literary reading. I'm like, hmm, this guy seems like he might be uh, the right sort of fella for this. And of course, everyone will get on me if I don't mention that Gene Roddenberry did not want to cast him because he thought that baldness would have been cured in the future. Ah, <sighs> Gene, Gene, Gene. Yeah. In the future, if people are supposedly this evolved, they're not going to care about being bald. <laughs> yeah, we cured it by stopping being so uptight about it. Exactly. Uh, I, I do believe there's a story, though, about, uh, you know, we, we have to get this actor past the, uh, some executive producers or uh, higher-ups and, par- and uh, the Paramount people here. Uh, put, put this toupee on uh, P- Patrick Stewart, and uh, we'll hope for the best. And it's like, okay, later. It's like, well, you get the job, but never, ever wear that horrible toupee again. <laughs> well, the reason that I heard was that they had him audition. Gene Roddenberry said no. He was completely overruled. And they had him audition again with a toupee. Roddenberry was a little more okay with it, but everyone was like, take that stupid thing off. And then he auditioned yes. a third time and they were able to convince him. It's like, all right, this guy, this guy's actually, all right, let's go. <laughs> and uh, famously, of course, he didn't know whether he wanted to take the part because he was a British stage actor and he didn't know anything about American television. And his agent talked him into signing a standard like six year contract, which he didn't necessarily want to commit to because this show is going to fail in a month. So you may as well get paid and so, go home. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you, you'll get some money and it'll fall apart and then you don't have to worry about this anymore. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that going on in this year. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, like, and like, oh, crap, my show's been successful. I- I should be a worse actor. <laughs> but of course, even even the other actors tend to agree that Patrick Stewart's performance as Picard and the just Shakespearean gravitas he's able to bring to even the most ridiculous situation 
is one of the only reasons this show worked for the first two seasons at all. It's like, here are our grounding for this uh, this nonsense, so uh, good luck. All right, next up in, I guess I'm going in rank order now, is uh, Jonathan Frakes, who plays William T. Riker. And, uh, uh, and his beard at yeah, times. Yeah, though not, not at the time. <laughs> yes. Again, almost a completely unknown actor at the time had been playing Captain America at Marvel conventions since the 70s and transitioned to some stage work in New York and some slightly longer running spots on on uh, on 70s and 80s soap operas and some like yes, very yeah, minor roles in something like, you know, yeah. <laughs> Dukes of Hazard and things like that. But uh, now he's pretty well known as, you know, the guy from Star Trek, some sci-fi stuff, and he mostly has transitioned into directing. Indeed, uh, you know, uh uh, he did, he was on uh, Fantasy Island, which uh, you know was some kind of surprising. You know, we're, you know the, the older actors, sure, but Charles Franks. Yeah, getting to work with Ricardo Montalban. Though Fantasy Island was not as long ago as we tend to think it is, just because it was yes. before we were born. <laughs> uh, you know, late seventies was his particular uh, appearance there. Uh, he was also on Gargoyles in the nineties. Yeah. It's- Xanatos. <laughs> so like everyone, he's moved on to be very well known and do a lot of very well known things. But of course, he was almost completely unknown at the time. Yes. Uh, so uh, so uh, John Shanthrank, Star Trek is kind of like your thing, but also acting and you're a pretty dang good actor, too. And then we'll get into it later. But of course, famously, he was unbearded for the first couple of seasons. And then the, the TV trope page for growing the beard is where you want to look into there. If you want to read about that yes. before we get to it. <laughs> And we've technically talked about when he re- uh, lost the beard as well. We have. It it, it yes. works. It bookends. <laughs> yes. Uh, though in uh, oh, uh, uh, Lower Decks, he has it back, which, you know. Good decision. I guess c- kind of goes with, you know, how ridiculous things are that it's like, all right, in order to even survive, I need Riker to have a beard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next, we have Brent Spiner, who plays Commander Data. He's some sort of android. Yeah. <laughs> some sort of android. They hadn't decided at this point. He was some sort of android, but his backstory was actually very different from what they wound up with later. Yeah, you know, that didn't really pop up until, uh, you know, we meet Lore as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, Prior to Star Trek, he was, again, a stage actor in the 70s and had some small TV roles. Um, he was probably working a bit more than some other people. He did have a reoccurring character on Night Court, and uh, he was a acquitted murder suspect on Cheers in one episode, apparently. He was um, <laughs> he was trained classically as a mime and was pretty well known for being a comedic actor, which is one of the reasons that it was very surprising that he was cast in this emotionless robot. Yes, uh, though at times it does actually very much help him. He, he, he plays a perfect straight man. Yes, he does incredibly yes. well, but also just like unknown actor for TV purposes. Um Seems like a weird miscasting at first glance if you don't know the everything that came after. This is like a weird thing with what lines up in this show. Well, sometimes, though, taking a chance on an unknown is going to create magic. Because, you know, if they are a dedicated actor, if they're devoted to their craft, they're going to give you a damn good performance, even if they're, you know, not someone that's a household name. And so you might not be getting people to the show via their celebrity or anything like that, but you're going to be generating a show that is high quality and thus gets a chance to make them into celebrity. 
which I guess happened here. <laughs> and uh, so speaking of unknown actors, we now hit the best known actor from the time period, which is interesting to think about because, I mean, he's still a very well-known actor. But if you think about the time, it seems a little weird that he would be the best known actor from this show. Uh, LeVar Burton playing Lieutenant Commander Jordy LaForge. He starts off as sort of the, uh, the I guess, the helm officer, uh, but eventually becomes the uh, chief engineer after the first season, uh, mainly because the chief engineers kept getting fired. <laughs> yeah, they couldn't keep a chief engineer in the first season. <laughs> so maybe one of them lasted two episodes. I don't remember. We'll find out. <laughs> so apparently uh, LeVar Burton is a natural-born actor because he had basically no training, decided to audition for a film role, got his first-ever audition, which brought him into the 1976 film uh, Armo's Man, and then... Almost a Man? Almost a Man. It's difficult to pronounce for me. Yes. Uh, then he got um, a lot of critical fame and attention for playing uh, Kunta Quinte in the miniseries Roots in 1977, and mm -hmm. um, also was very famous at the time for uh, hosting and producing the incredibly long-running PBS show Reading Rainbow. Yes, uh... Do they still make episodes of that? Uh, not. I don't think traditionally they've transitioned it a couple times into other formats. He, at mm. some point, was able to get complete control over the rights to that and has since turned it into more of a multimedia empire. Oh, they I have see. a podcast <laughs> and I think a reading app at this point. And he's also doing some more adult versions of like reading podcasts and things. He's still very committed to the whole reading idea. I'm I'm cool on reading as a, a writer's by <laughs> of works to be read. So <laughs> so thank you, Lavar Burton. Growing up with completely undiagnosed dyslexia, reading Rainbow was my exposure to most books. Yeah, I have trouble you know, going through this. So thank you for helping me, you know, get the the short version. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was also on Fantasy Island. Yeah. Everyone was, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> A rite of passage for 70s, 80s. <laughs> Jordy LaForge was conceived as a blind character because from even from early on, they wanted to have a member of the crew who had some sort of disability. And, and, and uh, you know, they hadn't uh, dreamed up transporter phobia yet. <laughs> <laughs> so they gave LaForge uh, his famous visor to give someone a, you know, actual visible disability on the show, which yeah, and, uh, is a good idea. I believe the... the yeah, the, the visor's like uh, made out of uh, a car filter and uh, like a hairband or something like that. Uh, and for its look, it looks pretty good, actually. It's one of those things that became iconic from the series. Very iconic. And I don't think it would have... They kept trying to transition him out of it. I don't know where I would put this in the timeline because uh, it's something that apparently they kept planning to do was have him go through a surgery or something and uh, get either replacement eyes or more normal looking mechanical eyes like they did in the movies. And uh, every time they were planning on it, they just got tons of letters from disabled fans saying, like, no, like, why do that? It's very important to have that kind of representation on this kind of show. Yeah. You know, it, you know he could be OK with himself and being different, you know. So uh, so don't don't try to prod him too much into one direction or all the other there. Let's Geordie be Geordie. Oh, I remember, I think it's a season two episode. Uh, they actually sort of bring up. Uh, the the sur you know, surgery option like explicitly um, but most of the other times it's sort of more you know we're just kind of thinking about the fans and the fans are like no yeah it's a good idea on the thing he just sees differently than people mm -hmm. uh, next we've got Maria Sirtis who plays Deanna Troy 
She is an English actor, uh, also working on stage for most of her career in England. Uh, came to a, had several film roles in England in the 80s and some guest TV appearances. Uh, did a few things in America, but not very much. Again, very unknown in America. Um, she was originally auditioning to play the security chief at the time, uh, who was not named Tasha Yar yet. Yes. <laughs> uh, she Unnamed security chief. Yeah. She got, well, it was like um, Maria Gomez or something. They wanted a Latinx uh, security chief, but that didn't work out with the casting. And... Uh, she got pretty far into the auditioning process before someone was like, you know what? I think you would be better as the ship's counselor, which is where she wound oh, up. Well, that's good. Yeah, well, if you say so. And uh, so she became the, uh, the Betazoid uh, character, Diana Troy. Uh, and if I recall, she was actually thinking about uh, leaving the show early on. Uh, but uh, Michelle Barrett's like, yeah, you seem kind of depressed. Let's go to a convention. And she's like, oh, a what? <laughs> and so they, they went to Star Trek convention and she had like a really great time and also was able to pay rent that month because, uh, you know, she signed autographs. <laughs> and so it's like, oh, maybe this is worth it after all. all right, I just have to make sure I have time for this then. Then someone who is only going to show up for the first season. Unfortunately, we have Denise Crosby, who played Tasha Yar. Uh, she was in a showbiz family being the granddaughter of Bing Crosby. Um, she... Bing. <laughs> she also had a lot of my, more minor film and TV roles, uh, early role in Days of Our Lives, and was originally cast as Troy. This is the switcheroo. They had her cast as Troy, yes. <laughs> and they had Maria Sirtis cast as Tasha Yar, and they got into the audition process more and more, and were like, I think we need to switch these two. Yeah, I think uh, you know, Tasha Yar ends up being woefully underutilized in the series, uh, generally, but as far as sort of the uh, core actor choices. I think this is actually a good, uh, a good decision they made there. Yeah. Uh, you know, cause you know, she definitely, you know, s seems to fill the role fairly easily. Even again, if they don't, you know, give it much, uh, much depth for her. Yeah. And unfortunately, as we'll get into, uh, partway through the season, she definitely felt undervalued and did decide to leave the show during the first season when things were not going very well. And so alas, Left Star Trek never to be returned until uh, a time travel episode. Yeah. And now she's pretty well known <laughs> for doing other things. She wrote, produced, yeah. and, and hosted the um, Star Trek fan film. I think it was called Fans or Trekkies. Now I'm having trouble remembering. I should have written it down. But it's pretty good. Pretty good documentary about the Star Trek fandom that I would recommend looking up. Yes. Uh, she's in tons of things like uh, Deep Impact and... Uh, yeah, you know, was in a couple episodes of the X Files and NYPD Blue. I uh, was also on Dexter and Jag and the Agency and even Fantas uh, Family Guy. Uh, Star Trek Phase Two. She shows up, uh, which yeah, I guess we could talk about the whole thing there. Uh, <laughs> Castle Invasion Mo Ro uh, uh, Rock uh, Roswell. There we go. Um, you know, she even shows up in things like video games, like XCOM Two. Uh, so yeah, she's she's been in some stuff since then and. Uh, you know, you know, her time on Star Trek may have been limited, but, you know, she's still doing doing what she wants. Works out. It also shows you just what a iconic cultural force this show is, that the person who had to leave during the first season because it wasn't going well still gets a bunch of name recognition off of having been associated with the show. Indeed. <laughs> so next we've gone on to Gates McFadden, who plays Dr. Beverly Crusher. She... Yes. 
was a choreographer, which I didn't actually know until I was researching this. Yes, uh, a choreographer. And so, like, the, the episodes where she's dancing, yeah, that's because she knows how to dance. <laughs> yeah. Worked for the Jim Henson Company for a number of years as the director of choreography and puppet motion for Labyrinth and the Muppets Take Manhattan. Oh, nice. Which also makes me sad that they didn't include more Muppets in this show like they did in Farscape. Well, uh, there are there are a few uh, uh, critters of that sort, but uh, we'll have to run into them uh, on a sp- sporadic basis. And she was, of course, acting, uh, did also like guest appearances in film and TV and things. But if, aside from behind the scenes work, also pretty unknown until Star Trek. Uh, another one who only lasted for the first season, but then came back, though this one wasn't her choice. So uh, there was uh, some um, disagreements. I believe Maurice Hurley was involved there. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I've heard several different stories, but one of them involves sexual harassment and things. So, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of different stories on this one and no definitive answers, unfortunately, yeah. for the historians amongst us. So it would be nice to know the truth here, but at the moment it's hard to say what's up. But it could have been just a eh, or it could have been a much worse than that. Rounding out the main bridge crew, we have Michael Dorn as Lieutenant Worf. Who uh, has been in a main character on two Star yes. Trek series. His original appearance, interestingly, was in Rocky as an uncredited bodyguard for Apollo Creed. Well, if anyone's going to po- protect Apollo Creed, it would be Worf. <laughs> was later on the show W.E.B., which I've never heard of. And then was cast as a regular on the show Chips. So he was one of the other better known people because he was a mm-hmm. main character on a different long running popular TV show. So Officer Jebediah Turner. Uh, he very famously just got very Klingon in his audition to win the part immediately. One of the immediate <laughs> castings because he went in, didn't talk to anyone, stoically read his lines and left. <laughs> Sir, we're being attacked. I suggest we fire phasers. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Worf's inclusion was thought of early on as well because they wanted to show the continuity and advancement since the original series when you had the Klingon War or Cold War, uh, depending on which episode you're in. Yes. (laughs) Conflicts of some sort. And it was kind of... Uh, just more of an inclusivity idea. Like at this point, we've gotten beyond our conflicts to the era where a character that would have been a enemy in the original series is now a member of the main cast. Yeah, and uh, for the first bit of the series, it's kind of ambiguous. You know, are the Klingons part of the Federation now, or or is he like a one-off sort of fella? And uh, you know, it eventually gets resolved, but still, it's sort of like you know, it's like this is. Is normal and everyone's sort of like, yeah, yeah, it's the Klingon guy. He's the, the you know the dude that never smiles, and uh, you know, you know, it's sort of not taken as unusual. Yeah, and they even sort of um, hadn't resolved the main Klingon storyline in the original series at this point because mm-hmm. Next Generation started to air before Undiscovered Country showed us the peace talk and start of the end of the Klingon war process that we have from these finalizing the story arcs of original series indeed and so it's sort of like uh, there's still sort of a lot of wiggle room as far as how things can sort of turn out as far as that's concerned you know maybe klingons are nearly extinct and he's one of the last of his kind or maybe klingons dominate a large section of the galaxy and the federation just like yeah we're just kind of cool with them it's fine yeah since we don't get into a lot of the klingon storylines and writing until like seasons two and three in the early series he's basically the only klingon we see for a while 
Yes, and um, he's to, to a certain degree almost uh, uh, you know, like the first season, almost like just an extra. Almost, <laughs> you know, he has lines, but still very much a he's subordinate to Tasha Yar, uh, and is you know, and so a lot of the stuff that you know, you know later in the series he'd be doing, she's doing instead, and he's just kind of there hanging out on the bridge. Yeah, well. Early on, he and Jordy are basically doing the same kind of like front of ship sort of con officer job. Yes. <laughs> Where are the miscellaneous people? They're the two that they hadn't quite figured out what to do with at this point. Indeed. And speaking of people they didn't know what to do with, we round out Uh-oh. our cast <laughs> with Will Wheaton playing Wesley Crusher. Yes, uh, Will Wheaton. Uh, you know, so he's gotten a lot of flack over the years for his role as a Wesley Crusher. And that's generally undeserved because he wasn't the one writing the show, guys. Yeah. Um, but, you know, yeah, but he's been in a ton of stu- stuff since then. But, yeah, it's it's still sort of this is early times for him. as far Yeah. As if you look back at it, he was an amazing actor, even at the time. Like, he did a good mm-hmm. job with what he was given. What he was given was insufferable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like he was in Stand By Me. He was fantastic in Stand By Me. And then he became Wesley and it's like, all right, you're kind of uh, the, the wonder kid here. And uh, Picard's telling you to shut up. Yeah. Huh. So he was uh, acting from a very early age. Around nine, he had his first role. He was also doing like early child acting voices. He was uh, in The Secret of Nim. Yes, it's Martin. And uh, I believe he was one of the characters in Last Starfighter. Forget who he was. Yes, uh, Lewis's friend. Yeah. So sub character in Last Starfighter, and then (laughs) gained a lot of fame, of course, by uh, starring in Stand by Me, which came out in 1986, the same year they were casting and filming this show. Mm -hmm. Uh, The original concept was to have a relatable teen character who was going to be a young teen girl because they felt that they had not really shown the development of a young teen girl whereas there were innumerable stories of the development of young teen boys but i guess they just decided they needed another one of those yes so uh he's not quite charlie x sort of absurdities here but uh you know it's it's star trek and uh roddenberry had a hand in it and yep. kids were involved so something weird's going to be happening mm-hmm. and it will and given the way that they handled wesley i'm very glad that they went this direction because if you miswrite a young teen boy character it's not half as cringy Yes. So uh, I guess we dodged a bullet? Question mark? (laughs) So despite his character being very unpopular, um, he was sort of the young audience POV character. I remember not hating him as much as a child. Yeah, I sort of saw him uh, as, all right, well, Wesley's here. Um, Cool. Um, Like, get me back to Picard. (laughs) Yeah. And he's not exactly that much smarter than any other kid on the ship. They're all doing calculus. Mm -hmm. Like, it it makes sense that they have increased their level of education in this era. Yeah. Well, maybe they figured out a way to teach calculus so you don't have to have like basic arithmetic yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone, it's time to do our differential geometry. Can I just add numbers, Mom? <laughs> so of course, Will Wheaton has since become a nerd culture icon. He's kind of leveraged his his role on this show and name recognition in the kind of nerd community to be a like cultural force in the new kind of nerd fandom area um, with a lot of YouTube content and like guest appearances on shows or either plays himself or someone who like is not himself, but you know, it's him. 
Yes. <laughs> Someone who's a, uh, an echo of himself. Uh, I believe he was on uh, the Big Bang Theory. Uh, was one of the ones people might remember the most there. Yeah, as an evil version of himself. <laughs> and then he was a reoccurring hacker character in Leverage. Uh, yeah. Not playing himself per se, but definitely the same character as the evil version of himself that he plays in other things. <laughs> you know, as you do. <laughs> Uh, but he's also been incredibly vocal about how bad it is to be a child actor, how he didn't want to be a child actor, and how all of the forced fame and things that he had from being a child actor, especially even on this series, which became very popular, uh, was not very good, and he did not enjoy it, even though the cast of the show was nothing but friendly and supportive. So yeah, even in a, a, the best environment possible, it's still kind of hell for a kid. So, yeah. And now we can end on a downer. A downer? What sort of downer? Well, that was it. Oh. But what about <laughs> uh, the, the most important in, uh, individual in the entire history of the Federation ever, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, 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 Chief O'Brien, uh, played by Cole Meany. Yeah, he's also around. He's not a named <laughs> character yet. <laughs> yeah, uh, he he does show up in Encounter the Farpoint, the you know, the pilot episode. Uh, so I I wanted to bring him up here a little bit because uh, that episode's gonna probably gonna be long enough for both of us. Uh, but uh, you know, he's uh, you know someone who's you know once again you know was done a, did a few things before Star Trek, but after Star Trek, really kind of picked things up. You know, he was, uh, you know, I guess uh, in something called Les Roses de Dublin, uh, which might have something to do with Ireland. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, since then, you know, he's been kind of just working constantly and, uh, oh, and the, he's still got stuff coming out. So what's really interesting is he basically uh, was a sub character. He was just like con officer, then transporter officer. And he even himself has said that he didn't realize his character was getting popular until one day he showed up and instead of his lines having transporter officer next to them, they said Miles O'Brien. Yes. Wait, I have a first name? (laughs) When did this happen? (laughs) Yeah, he was one of those characters where they kept bringing him back because they liked the actor and he was such a good actor that they eventually transitioned him into a named main character who then, of course, went on to be a main bridge member cast on Deep Space Nine. Indeed. Uh, so in Counter-Four Point, he was Battle Bridge Khan, Lowly Mungus Security Guard 1, the Child Transporter Chief, uh, and then that next couple episodes he was in. Uh, then Unnatural Selection in 1989, so a couple years into the series, he was Chief Miles O'Brien, finally. And then he was that for the rest of the series. So, so yeah, it took him a few episodes. <laughs> and then I guess the last person that we should mention, who is uh, also a seminal figure in Star Trek, is Michelle Barrett, who, mm-hmm. in addition to having a few guest appearances as Luxana Troy, Deanna Troy's mother, in uh, this season and later seasons, one of the best reoccurring characters of uh, Next Generation, she also mm-hmm. is in this series a lot as the voice of the main computer. Indeed. So, uh, you know, she's kind of in a good number of episodes, like over 100. <laughs> so uh, we've talked about her before. Number one. Number one in the original pilot episode then nurse chapel yeah in uh original series later doctor and met chief medical officer chapel and by the time you get to the movies so moved up into the world and then transcended her character and become Luxana troy the enterprise computer and uh and rolled on forever after 
correct. Yes. Enterprise computer, Lexana Troy in several episodes. So she's a very, very involved in this. So not as much. She did. She was in like, I think, two episodes of uh, Deep Space Nine. Yes. And was the computer on Voyager as well, because same Thanks computer. Me. But um, yeah. <laughs> then, of course, later uh, got too old and, and failing health and couldn't continue on and then eventually died in in uh, 2008 rest in peace it is a little little interesting though that she was number one in the in the the original pilot of star trek and then became the computer in the episode one one zero zero one zero zero one i think you're reaching but (laughs) (laughs) yes and that's our main cast until we transition uh, a couple times. Like we'll we'll have to do this again in later seasons because we do change out the cast a few times, not very significantly. But we're going to get a couple of characters coming back, re- like leaving, then coming back. New characters being brought in as main cast slash semi reoccurring cast. So uh, you know, uh, Diana uh, Moldar uh, Doar uh, there, uh, who we've talked about previously, uh, will be uh, Doctor Pulaski in the second season. But we'll talk about more her more then. Yes. And there's also got, you know, you know, Ensign Rowe and Nurse Ogawa and uh, uh and uh, Reginald Barkley. Almost said Charles Barkley. <laughs> <laughs> and Guinan. Don't forget Guinan. Yes, Guinan. Uh uh who uh wanted to be on the the series and it's like, "Can I be in the series?" and like, mm, "Sure. Come on. What do you want to be?" <laughs> awesome. <laughs> she wanted to be in the series early on and she might have been brought in for something in the first season. Because mm-hmm. she knew LeVar Burton from some other things they'd worked together on. And yes. she asked him to send the message to the higher-ups that she was interested in being on the show. And they thought it was a joke because she was an Academy Award-winning actor at this point. And they're like, why would someone like that want to be on our stupid little failing sci-fi show? Well, I like Star Trek. Uh, duh. <laughs> well, we'll be able to talk about that more later on, of course. <laughs> sure. <laughs> So, uh, but, um, but but what about uh, 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 Tony Todd as Kern? He's in three episodes. <laughs> <laughs> or Andreas Katsoulis as Commander Tobolok. He's in four episodes. We're gonna get them all later when when we get guest stars. Remember, we just this is the people who are gonna be in every episode, so we have to talk yes. about them now, so we don't <laughs> have to spend twenty minutes reading every name at the start of every episode. But what about Leonard Nimoy? Who comes in and plays Spock for two episodes? <laughs> Come on, Geplin. We need to talk about all of them now. <laughs> all right, I'll, I'll calm down. <laughs> uh, the late '80s, early '90s, when the show was coming out, a uh, markedly different time to the mm-hmm. 1960s when the show was originally conceived, original series. Um, because we are now at the far end of the Cold War. Yes. Not in the middle. Now on near the end. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to the point where it's basically going to be over within the first year or so of this show. It's like, oh, uh, the Soviet Union's kind of looking to re- start reforming because, you know, things are kind of not good there. So, uh, yeah, we'll kind of, um, I guess we have to talk about other things other than the Cold War. Uh, what we got? Yeah, that's Space one stuff? of the problems that they had. <laughs> but that's an interesting thing to look at with this era of Star Trek, with, like, looking at uh next generation specifically and then also moving into ds9 which i'm not going to get to for a while but as a a kind of juxtaposition mm-hmm. um next generation era star trek is peacetime star trek this is yes. probably written and produced during the most peaceful time in american history yeah we're, you know no big uh, conflicts on the horizon you know the big conflict we thought was going to happen 
probably isn't going to happen or if it does, it's going to be over very quickly and everyone's going to be dead. So I don't have to worry about it so much. So we're just going to kind of enjoy like living it up for a bit. Yeah, the Cold War had been won. We're a few years away from uh, like any of our Middle Eastern conflicts. Uh, Even those were, you know, not even at the time as well publicized as something like Vietnam. Like America was the dominant, unchallenged, unquestioned superpower at this point. Nothing can touch us. Our military can roll over anyone. We can do anything we want. What are we going to do about that? And that is the era and cultural context that the writers of this show have to deal with. And so uh, Gene and the the, uh, the writers were like, so what if we were like, just chill? What, what, what would that look like? How can we make it interesting? <laughs> There's two general main themes that run through this era of Star Trek. One is that it's a very peaceful era. We are a peaceful people. There's no major conflicts we have to deal with. Sometimes they come up, but even in Next Generation, they only last two or three episodes. Yes. Okay, so we're we're having a uh, you know a situation with the Romulans, and well, I guess we kind of resolved that, and we didn't enter a war, so hooray! Let's 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 go about our business then. The other particular thing that's going to keep coming up as we talk about this show is the Enterprise itself, l- largely the Federation generally, but we don't know as much about the Federation even in this era. They don't show up as often, but the Enterprise itself is a very stand-in for America diverse crew, you know, peaceful people, best of intentions, the most powerful ship ever conceived. They are essentially unchallengeable (laughs) for the first season. And the, uh, the, uh, the enterprise is, you know, basically the largest main ship we focused on in Star Trek to this day. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know, Deep Space Nine is technically bigger, but it's not a spaceship. It's a space station, so it's different stuff going we on. We do get <laughs> like challenges when when we start introducing the Romulans later on. They have ships as big as the Enterprise, and you get mm-hmm. to things like that where you can have standoffs again. But most of the time, even in the later seasons of the show, the Enterprise is unquestionably the most powerful thing you're going to encounter. The tension of the show does not come from we can be challenged on a military weapons level. It is a show about dealing with politics from a place of absolute power. Yes. So what do, what is doing the right thing given this level of power we have? We could abuse it or we could try to do something a little bit more ethical here. We could try to resolve our problems without violence and, uh, you know, there might be a technical thing we have to uh, sort out here to get around whatever difficulties we have, but we're going to figure out something here. And, we're go- and so, it, you know, it's not all technical plots, of course, but it's very much a, you know, we're going to use our heads, not our fists here to sort the- our problems out. Yes. And then, of course, now, having uh, spent a lot of our lives in a post 9-11 world, when America feels vulnerable again. Uh, it's a weird thing to look at going back to the 80s, 90s, when you had to write stories from this kind of basically moral authority standpoint. We are the most powerful people in the galaxy. What does that mean about our obligations to others? What does that mean about how we get to unquestionably dictate terms if we want to? Like, how does that make us interact with other people who arguably with our immense power, we could help, but 
we also can dictate policy and cultural influence and all kinds of things because we can be unquestionably unchallenged. And so I, I think that's probably why discussions of the, the prime directive show up so much in the uh, uh, TNG, uh, you know, even compared to like Voyager and things like that, where they're basically meeting somebody new every other week. Yeah, so we're going to get into a lot more of the you know finer detail discussion as we go through episodes because they 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 change their stance on this a lot. Uh, there's some times where they unquestionably misapplied the prime directive and some other yes. things, <laughs> even according to their own rules. So, we'll we'll sort that out then. <laughs> it's not something you really hit anymore, because even though we still do have a lot of unquestioned military power. America has never really felt this invulnerable again. You know, we're no longer riding as uh, nearly as high as we thought we used to be. Uh, and some people are angry about that, uh, but it's a matter of where we are at, you know? And uh, perhaps at the time, uh, the, uh, the that feeling of invulnerability was not well-founded uh, because, you know, the world is more complicated and, you know, than we usually give it credit for. Uh, but, you know, it's, it was the feeling at the time. So where are you going to be writing from? <laughs> And then where we're coming from, I'm going to do my best to not bring too much nostalgia into this, but it's basically impossible. Yes, uh, this is the Star Trek we grew up with here. Yeah, not only is this the Star Trek that I grew up with, this show came out, started airing when I was so young. And my mother was such a Star Trek fan that she was, of course, watching it when I was a baby. I full on do not remember a time of being introduced to this show. It's a something that has always been there for you. Yeah, it just always existed. You know, uh, for me, uh, I wasn't quite that early, but I guess I became generally aware of it at some point. Uh, and then I realized, wait, this is actually really good. So uh, by the time I was in middle school and high school, I would try to watch Star Trek whenever I could see it on. Uh, and the I, I forget what channel it was, but uh, every weekday at 10, uh, they'd put on a TNG episode. And this is a problem when you're going to school and, you know, your parents want you to be in bed by 10, but it's like, oh yeah, I need to finish my homework. And so I'd make sure to not do my homework until 10 at night <laughs> so I could make sure to have Star Trek on at the same time. It's like, yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not done. So, uh, I need to be up still. And, you know, sure. It kind of sucked in the next morning. It's like, all right, why are you waking me up at 6 a.m.? Ow. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's still, it gave me... It gave me sort of a, a break from you know the, the the weird life I was living as a, as a young person, uh, but also was something that was a big anchor, I guess, as far as my routines went. Uh, and so, yeah, I watched a good portion of the series at that point. Uh, didn't catch Jeffrey's episode of that you know until you know later, but uh, yeah, it's still sort of something that was a part of my life for a good number of years, and was kind of one of the biggest parts of my life you could even say you know there was other shows i was watching you know, especially when you know deep space nine started coming out and uh, i'm a big fan of babylon 5 as well uh and so those you know sort of joined it all um uh, as you know you know along with tng uh when they were you know starting up but you know it, it was still sort of the the first part of that uh sort of ensemble of things of start of sci-fi i really loved it's gonna be really interesting having to go through I'm looking forward to it, but in some ways I'm kind of terrified of having to bring such a, uh, trying to bring a, a unbiased eye to things. Because I will say, this show, probably more than any other early life experience for me, defined my sense of morality. Yeah, and uh, people wonder why uh, millennials uh, you know, have broken with a lot of the older generations on a number of moral stances. 
<laughs> Star Trek, did you have something to do with this? <laughs> so we're going to have to look into what the show is actually saying, what subtextually yes. <laughs> it's saying, because that's often very different. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely some early episodes I'm not looking forward to covering based on how they handle uh, race, sexuality, and gender. <laughs> Um, also, there's that uh, uh, case with the jewels out in it that with the talking face that, that freaks me out too. Yeah, that's a weird one. <laughs> Took me a while to figure out how they did that as a kid. I'm kind of ashamed of that now. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's just you know a, a process of you know opening up a hole in the transporter, but you know you, you do, don't think about that because the transporter seems like it's a fixed thing, mm-hmm. not set. But yeah, Star Trek. <laughs> That's uh, that's as much as we're going to go over right now, because anything else will just be repeating stuff that we're going to go over in individual episodes. Yes. Um, though, I guess this might be uh, a good as time as any to uh, talk about the ship itself for real quick, if you got a moment. That's true. So USS Enterprise D. It's big. Uh, yes. Technically D. the largest spacecraft ever devised for this series. Yep. <laughs> it's huge. Uh, standard crew of like a thousand plus people. Uh, you know, I don't remember how many decks it has. Uh, it can separate into two, uh, large sections, the saucer and the, the, uh, the engine, uh, engineering section. Uh, you know, two warp nacelles, a, a tall, uh, warp reactor. Uh, the, uh, bit sort of on the, on the, the engineering section, uh, basically directly under the deck. Uh, and, uh, is actually like there's several decks where they're supposed to be just a giant deuterium tank. So if you want to blow up the enterprise, that's one of the places to shoot. Uh, <laughs> uh, there is, uh, it runs off, uh, antimatter, uh, you know, interactions, uh, or annihilations and things like that in the warp core. Uh, but the antimatter itself is generated in various points across the ship, uh, using, I guess, some sort of fusion reactor. Uh, I, I have the book, uh, the blueprints, uh, but I don't have them in front of me right now. Um, in uh, in some uh, iterations of what's been presented and people talk about, there may or may not be uh, whales on board, <laughs> uh, which would imply that there's large sections of the ship that are actually uh, giant, you know, uh, water tanks that contain these whales and uh, maybe some a bunch of dolphins. Uh, I think they're mentioned once in the actual series um, and just sort of passed. It's like, hey, I want to show you the thing. Uh, it has uh, holodecks, which are very much, you know, like the uh, recreation room for the animated series, but a lot more you can touch things. And, you know, there's wa- food and water sometimes. Um, but we can get more into that when we start having holodeck malfunctions, too. Uh, <laughs> which has become a trope of Star Trek, but it wasn't quite yet at this point. Uh, there, you know, is a captain's yacht, which is under the salsa section. But it's not really ever used. Never used uh, or there mentioned. Is a, yeah. <laughs> but it's supposedly there. It's a little circle bit there that sticks out the bottom. Uh, there's, you know, shuttle bays. There's cargo bays. There's a 10 forward place, uh, which is like the lounge slash, you know, bar. Um, you know, there's numerous crew quarters. Uh, the, uh, the Once again, the, the blueprints actually point out to where everyone's quarters are. Uh, though sometimes uh, those vary depending on you know, what episode you're looking at too. So, you know, whatever. Um, you know, there is a, uh, in the actual production of the show, they did build a number of corridors and rooms. Uh, and of course, because magic TV is like, all right, we just need part of this corridor. So we're not actually going to build a whole hall outside this, this particular door from, from, uh, from sick bay, but you know, we'll never go out that door. So it's fine. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> we'll have people go through that door, but we'll not take the camera through it. Um, and I don't have it. I wasn't able to find it again, but I've seen a actual schematic of the set uh, and how everything sort of connected together and what parts are movable and what have you. Um, and uh, it's, it's, you know, quite clever sort of uh, illusions of television sort of stuff going on there. Uh, as far you know, back to the uh, the ship, it has phasers, photon torpedoes, it got shields, and it's probably as far as the various ships that show up in uh, various Star Trek, probably the most temperamental of the sp- <laughs> of the starships we run into, uh, partially because the series did run for seven seasons, uh, so they were able to have lots of random tech plots. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, it's, you know, like Deep Space Nine, early on there's a bunch of tech plots, it's like, yes, uh, you know, uh, you know, O'Brien needs to fix whatever here, and you know, it's an important part of the plot. And then later, it's like, all right, I guess I'm going to go fix this, and it's not really important to the plot, that sort of thing. Um, so it becomes less less of an issue there. In Voyager, there's occasional uh, fix the ship sort of plots, but it's more, uh, I guess, we're just going to come up with some new technology that we're never going to use again, uh, and then that's our sort of technical, uh, you know, inoculation for this particular uh, you know bit of the season. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, in Next Generation, it's like, yes, uh, the shields are failing and we have to go fix the things. And this is going to be kind of a critical uh, ticking clock that we hope gets done ticking before this other ticking clock sort of uh, strikes and all that. So it's the largest ship, but also in as far as, you know, what we're showing, one that requires the most repair, which kind of makes sense because it is a massive structure. It is a massive ship. So you would think that of all the, uh, you know, ones were, or, or shown over the years, that it would be the one that would require the most maintenance. So it's a poor Jordy, in other words. Yeah, I think that covers <laughs> it well. <laughs> I mean, every time, it is because every time they needed to write a episode that takes place exclusively on the ship, some part of the ship has to break to justify it. Uh, like disasters, like we ran into a space thing and uh, the ship's now, uh, you know, you, you, the people can't get around because power's wonky. Uh, and we might explode, but everyone could be dead down below. So we need to make a, a moral decision up here in the bridge while also you need to fix a problem in uh, the cargo bay at the same time. And also the warp core is going to go critical because for some reason, no one's in engineering. <laughs> but, you know, everyone was it, it was a day off, I guess. Yeah. People weren't going to work. <laughs> that's fine. Don't worry about it. But, uh, but yeah, that, that's sort of like one of the more iconic uh, episodes there. But uh, it is still sort of. You know, it's like, all right, this is just so many things happening wrong at the same time. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's uh, it's like that. And of course, we're going to get a chance to mention more of that as we go, because there's all of the all of the holodeck episodes, which are excuses to use the Paramount backlot. Um, yep. <laughs> why do they keep using these things? Because they kill someone every time someone walks into the dang room. This there's uh, the weird exposed plasma junctions that you can just jump into. Well, people use the holodeck. Uh, there's there's two people, the two group, general groups of people that use the holodeck. There's main cast members who use it to play, uh, you know, Dixon, Dixon Hill uh, detective novels. Or there's people that use the holodeck for sex. Yeah, and you don't want to know how that breaks. <laughs> Those are the episodes they're not allowed to make on, uh, you know, an 80s TV here. <laughs> All right, so... So we got lewd. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're going to get to that in like the third episode, second of our episodes, third episode overall. We hit the not safe for work stuff real early. Oh, dear. 
Because it is. I'm scared. Still that era of Star Trek. We still are trying mm-hmm. to redo some of the original series stuff, which we'll talk about because there are about a lot of kind of like soft reboot original series episodes. And uh, Gene's still getting uh, his uh, porn uh, made into a TV show. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> so, uh, anything else we need to sort of uh, summarize overall? Uh, I think that's most of it. We're going to get into other stuff as we go. Um, I know we don't have a super active YouTube comments section, but either then there or the Discord, please do share your early Star Trek stuff from this era. Because this is one where I think more people uh, in our age bracket, this is like their Star Trek start discussions we can all talk about things before we get to the next thing um yes we are going to cover the two-parter as with other ones we are probably going to do it in one episode because it doesn't make sense to split it up like that which means it's going to be a lot of a lot of interesting stuff but we are going to have to skip over a lot because most of his character intros and we've done a lot of that so but but also encountering farpoint like other than the cube's plot not much happens that is true yeah (laughs) It's a lot of filler. It's mostly character intros, which we've already done, so it's fine. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, next time uh, we will get into actual Next Generation with the first ever Next Generation episode, The Encounter at Farpoint. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, cue the pilot. have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more, and where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Mori's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs>